Hello, and welcome to The Building's Podcast, an Endeavor business media production. Join us on the first and third Monday of every month as we explore trending topics in the built environment. I'm Janelle Penny, Editor-in-Chief of Buildings Magazine, and today I'm here with Dan Sullivan, Vice President of COVA and former Head of Design for Google Architecture's R&D Lab. Today we're going to talk about the cycle of reuse and what that means for interiors. Dan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So adaptive reuse has been a hallmark of sustainable design for a long time, but often only the core and shell are reused and the rest is gutted. Can you tell me more about the cycle of reuse and what's making that possible? Um, Yeah, sure. So maybe, you know, first we can talk a little bit about uh, what adaptive interiors um, are to begin with. And, you know, adaptive interiors really begin with the idea that um, different parts of the building have different lifespans, right? So the site is forever. The core and shell has a lifespan, we hope, of, uh, you know, 100, 100 plus years. Mechanical systems are 20 years. Uh, and the interiors, unfortunately, are one of the most short-lived uh, sort of layers of the building, really only hanging around for about three to 10 years, depending on, you know, what the what the building use is. Um, so, um, you know, adaptive reuse is, is really about uh, decoupling those layers uh, in a way that evolves them to, uh, or allows them to evolve at, at their own rates. Um, uh, so I think, you know, if you look historically at the definition of adaptive reuse, I think, you know, when I first set out in the field of architecture, it was, you know, kind of really about taking old factory buildings. I grew up, uh, started my career in Massachusetts where there are a ton of old brick factory buildings um, and, you know, converting those to housing or, or office. Um, and so I think the way that we used to talk about it was that adaptive reuse was kind of a one-time, a one-time deal. It was taking an old building and converting it to a new use, not really thinking about what that next use might be. Um, so, you know, when we talk about cycles of adaptive reuse, I actually love that way of, of putting it because, um, because adaptive reuse actually is a cycle. Um, and so I think that you're seeing sort of an evolving definition of, of what adaptive reuse means. And we're, we're not just thinking about that one-time conversion to a new use. Um, we're thinking about what the uses might be um, in the future, the ones that we're, that we're not predicting. Um, so I think, you know, if you think about cycles of adaptive reuse, I think the, the contemporary moment really tells us that we should be pointing at um, reusing it once and then uh, envisioning what its uses might be um, down the road and what the next one is after that. Um, really kind of evolving it as long as the core and shell of the building can actually su- uh, support those changes. What are some of the emerging technologies that are extending the lifespan of today's buildings and making them adaptable for tomorrow? Great question. Um, it's su- such a salient question, especially now with the uh, sort of the advent of uh, artificial intelligence. And I think it's still a big question about how artificial intelligence is going to become a technology to advance um, 
the, the building industry. But I think that we could probably think of, uh, you know, technology in the construction industry in, um, uh, you know, a few different categories. Um, one is, uh, you know, technology enabled design and, uh, you know, we could, we could say that that actually begins with, um, well, potentially with AutoCAD, uh, you know, kind of back in the in the early 80s, the first time that computers actually showed up on the, the desks of architects. Uh, and I, I think that probably the sort of the most prevalent uh, technologies are um, or the most mainstream tools at, at this point are, are sort of in the Revit family of, of, of tools, not to um, plug for Autodesk here, but they, but they are really sort of leading the charge when it, when it comes to this. Um, another is, a, you know, another way that technology is being uh, integrated, I, you know, I would say you might call this category like technology vested products. Um, so this really ties to the advent of sensors being integrated with, uh, with building products. So, you know, I, I my background is workplace, so I, I come from uh, a place where, uh, you know, we were installing occupancy sensors in rooms to understand, uh, you know, space utilization and also to turn the lights on and off uh, as, as necessary. Um, in our own homes, we have smart thermostats, you know, those, those kinds of things. Um, but I think, you know, if you think about, um, where the industry is headed, how the construction process is, is actually evolving. Um, the frontiers for technology at this point, I think, are the ones that actually facilitate the evolution from traditional uh, construction practices uh, to a model which is um, more based in componentized or, uh, or productized um, construction. So. Um, I guess uh, that's really software that on one hand is, you know, sort of facilitating the, the transition from traditional practice to, uh, to practices of manufacturing and assembly. Um, and on the other hand is sort of um, in the productized and, and componentized world, enabling the pulling of components from various corners of the supply chain and making sure that when they land on site, they're, uh, largely, you know, compatible with each other. So, um, all that to say that I think that the, you know, the, the current suite of technology now is, um, software that can, in an effort to facilitate that transition from traditional practice to, you know, more technology offsite construction based practice, um, uh, enables, taking a design as we have it today and then re-envisioning that in the context of, you know, productized multi-trade assemblies. Um, and then software that can actually export uh, instructions for manufacturing. So, um, you know, if you, if you think of the AutoCAD and Revit days, um, the software was really targeting um, a set of drawings that are printed on paper that are submitted to a uh, a local jurisdiction, those drawings are, are brought out to the site and uh, workers on site read those drawings and then build from them. 
Um, and really now the export is sets of digital instructions for products on a um, on a on an assembly line on a manufacturing line. So that's you know kind of taking the design and creating the instructions for robots on an assembly line to uh, to to make them. Um, so it's uh, I think that those are you know that's really kind of where you're seeing investment in in technology today. Do people need to know about adaptive reuse specifically as it applies to interiors? Um, great question. I think um, the first thing <laughs> that we need to know is that we are really terrible at, at predicting the future. Um, so um, we, we kind of just have to admit that. Uh, and tee ourselves up for for success in that context. Um, I think that you know when it comes to uh, you know building interiors, I think as I said sort you know earlier is that you really have to start with the exterior of of the building or the 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 core and shell of the building. So when you're adapting an interior. You're really also evaluating the the core and shell for what it can sustain in terms of um, adaptable interior um, opportunities. Um, so, you know, when it when it comes to the core and shell, there are a few things that you're potentially looking at. One is that you're looking at um, a building that will last. So you're looking at a, at a building that's that's well constructed. That's structurally appropriate for its context. And here in California, you want a, a building that's not gonna uh, be susceptible to seismic events, for example. Um, you're gonna want a building that has uh, a generous floor to floor height. So that's really about accommodating, um, uh, you know, the relocation of mechanical systems, for example, or allowing uh, daylight to penetrate deeply uh, into the floor plate. Um, you're looking, you know, along those lines, you're also looking at large windows. You wouldn't want a building that has a lot of opaque facade on it, for example, although in theory, uh, with the right structural program, that could be, could be changed out. Um, you want long span, uh, structure. So large uninterrupted volumes of space. And what that enables is, you know, the flexible, uh, placement of interior partitions, not having to worry about, uh, load-bearing partitions in the interior of the floor plate. Um, uh, you Potentially, you're also looking at uh, room on site to either expand outward or up or upward. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we're looking at is uh, in evaluating the building is, is there appropriate exiting? Um, you know, as you, as you change use, you might need um, to add additional exit stairways. Um, and having room on the site would enable you to sort of, you know, append uh, an exterior um, uh, stairway to the building to get uh, additional exiting. Um, you know, other things related, I guess, you know, you know, more to policy is that the zoning supports um, the change of use and, and the expansion. Um, 
So, so all that to say that I think that that first it begins with, you know, evaluating the exterior of the build or the, the 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 corn shell of the building for uh, its appropriateness for for reuse, um, and then I think you know the, the in terms of what you actually put inside of it. Um, I mean, the the products that have been uh, product design for the interior, let's just say, is is an is an evolution. And I think um, through testing a bunch of products in the interior, we've realized the things that don't work. And so I think those those characteristics begin to form the basis of design for products that actually do work. Um, so some of the things that have historically been challenges in interior products for reconfigurability are things like, um, I mean, starting with aesthetics, uh, products that have, uh, you know, sort of been, uh, created for the interior of the building are, uh, historically of a particular aesthetic without the ability to apply your own aesthetic to it. Um, and so, um, one thing that we look for, for, uh, for interior products are, are those that don't look modular, but that can actually sort of, you know, adapt to their context. Um, another air, another failure point for interior products historically has been um, acoustic performance. Um, so I think that we've all been in, you know, office spaces or um, or educational spaces where the where you can hear a whispered conversation happening on the other side of the wall, and uh, and we know that that's not desired. So interior products have high acoustic um, performance. Um, from a um, sort of a, pro a product completeness perspective, um, you want a product that actually maximizes offsite construction. So you don't want a lot of construction happening on site. Obviously, on site construction is messy and time consuming. So you want something that can be switched in and out um, really, uh, really quickly over the course of a, of a couple of days. Um, along those lines, you want products that take full advantage of um, uh, of all the trades. So you want multi-trade assemblies, things that actually have, uh, you know, have already integrated uh, electrical components, have already integrated um, mechanical components, so that you're just kind of switching it in once, fire protection components as well. Um, and you want products that are actually truly um, reconfigurable without uh, you know, minimizing waste and also minimizing the addition of uh, of other custom uh, components. So that's I think that that's both a question of the design of the system and how it's attached to the to the base building, um, but it's also an attitude toward how you conceive of the modularity of the of the products themselves. So uh, whether you know, for example, you've chosen 24 inch, 36 inch, 48 inch panels, um, or whether you've chosen um, an approach to modularity, which is more reflective of the structural grid of the building. So, you know, there's there's the exterior of the building, there's the interior products that um, that that go inside of it. But I think that the you know the idea is that um, when you're in the design process you're thinking about not just 
the use that you're designing for today, but also for the ones that you're not even thinking of in the future. How can adaptive reuse that takes interiors into consideration also reduce construction waste? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I mean, that's really one of one of the main drivers of the uh, of why you would use it to begin with. I think. Um, I mean, it's it's, it's resource construction. Uh, sorry, resource conservation in general. Um, so the from the owner's perspective, um, if an owner can purchase a product once to achieve, you know, a number of interior future reconfigurations of the building, that's a a conservation of financial resources for the owner. Um, it's a conservation of time resources. You have less downtime um, in your building for, um, you know, taking, uh, getting people out of the building to, you know, to renovate. Um, and then, you know, of course, the construction waste is is a huge one. I mean, I, there's a lot of statistics out there. The EPA has done some, you know, some studies on construction. McKinsey has done some some reports on it and um the 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 percentage of landfill waste that's contributed by construction in particular is is staggering and interior construction actually makes up a, a huge portion of that just because i mean by virtue of the fact that it's actually changing out at a much faster rate than the than the exterior envelope um there's a statistic uh i jotted down a couple things for you because I suspected that you would ask for numbers. Um, and just from an EPA report, uh, more than 90% of annual construction debris is created by renovation and demolition. I mean, that is just staggering. Um, renovation creates roughly 60 pounds of waste per square foot. Um, drywall is actually a a a huge contributor to this. I mean, drywall, you know, as you know, is is kind of our go-to material for for interior partitions. Um, and that is 15 million tons of waste in landfills each year. Um, and, you know, wood products from renovation contribute 40, 40 million tons of waste to landfills each year. So these are not small numbers. So, it, you know, even if you can reuse your interior partitions once, twice, you're we're really making a dent in in what is a, a huge environmental concern. Absolutely. So we've talked about reducing construction waste, but what are some of the other benefits of adaptive reuse? Yeah, I mean, I so I as I said, I think if if you're a building owner or if you are um, uh, uh, a tenant, financial resources are always a huge concern. Um, and so, um, it's, it's not always equivalent, but as, but as you're conserving, you know, raw and natural resources for construction, you're also, uh, conserving, um, uh, financial resources. And that's, that's huge, uh, for, for, for building owners. Um, and again, you know, time, time is another one. Um, uh, the, the logistics of taking a space offline when you have a portfolio of real estate to manage 
uh, involves moving a bunch of people out of that space into other spaces. It means holding um, certain uh, parcels of real estate as swing spaces to be able to do that. Um, and so, so it's a, you know, it's a conservation of time and of just general real estate on your, uh, throughout your portfolio. How do you know if your building is a good candidate for adaptive reuse strategies, especially ones that maybe preserve parts of the interior? Well, the, the list that I sort of enumerated before really kind of characterizes it. So, you know, quality of construction, floor to floor height, uh, uh, clear spans. But uh, as you kind of mentioned, the interior construction, um, one thing that tends to be a real obstacle to interior reconfigurability is the use of a lot of load bearing partitions uh, across the interior. Those tend to be partitions that can't be relocated <laughs> or at least not relocated easily. Um, and so, uh, so you, you, you know, that sort of the, the, the parcelization of the interior space is, is typically an obstacle. Um, fortunately, you don't see that in, um, in a lot of office buildings or a lot of uh, industrial buildings. Those tend to be pretty open floor plates. Where you do see that a lot is um, in multifamily residential and single family residential. So those uses really tend to be rather difficult uh, in terms of, um, in terms of adaptive reuse. So I think, you know, I mean, to state the obvious as, you know, as we're kind of moving forward with, uh, you know, ground up construction today, it makes sense to take historical knowledge as precedent and use those same things that we've discovered have, you know, worked for adaptability in the past and, you know, parlay them into how we, uh, design our buildings going forward. Dan, what would you say are the key takeaways from this episode? Uh, I would say that, uh, A, we need to um, admit that we are not great at, at predicting the future and tee ourselves up for uh, success uh, going forward. And that means um, leveraging um, you know, new technology that's coming onto the market, uh, uh, new products, and really a new way of uh, thinking about buildings. Buildings that instead of being static objects that actually evolve at the same rate that human beings do. Dan, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Janelle. My pleasure. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Buildings Podcast. Hit that subscribe button and join us again next time to hear another episode and check out the show notes on our website for extra resources related to this podcast. You can also stay up to date with Buildings by following us on social media, visiting our website at buildings.com, and signing up for our newsletter, The Buildings Buzz, to keep up with all things Buildings. We'll see you next time. 